This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Joining us for this segment, a guest uh, talking about the digital economy and what's happening in social media driving the markets. Professor, we didn't have a show last week. A lot of interesting action in the markets the last few weeks. What's your current sense? Uh, certainly is, Jeremy. Um so uh, let me start with the most important thing, the most important issue. That is uh, that the Democrats are set now to pass uh, the multi-billion-dollar stimulus bill. They've gone to reconciliation. Manchin approved it. I don't think it's going to be 1.9 billion. I think it's going to be about 1.5. Um, I think this actually is adding fuel to the fire. Uh, not today's fire, but the future fire. Now, uh, again, uh, the data today, we got our jobs report. It was uh, it was weak. Uh, it's in the rear view mirror. Uh, we know uh, that we that the virus surge of the winter slowed things down dramatically. Um, but we also know we're on the cusp of not only a decline in the number of uh, new cases, uh, but also uh, an acceleration of the vaccinations which is going to really open up the economy by mid-year. So the market is still, that's what they're focused on. I mean, it is uh, unprecedented amount of stimulation in the economy. Uh, Biden is all in for it. Uh, and uh, this is going to, in my opinion, push inflation ahead, push bond prices up, but in the meantime, uh, cause uh, the economy to, to boom. We also have GameStop. Uh, and, of course, we can talk about that more. Um, a lot of the air has come out of that, but um, uh, I think this is the first short squeeze that was ever engineered by uh, social media. Uh, it's usually big guys playing around in futures markets or gold markets or, or one or the other. So that is the new part, but uh, squeezes have been around for 200 years. That that is not uh, news. Uh, it is a sideshow, although um, it does bring a lot of people are going to lose money. They have lost money already, um, and uh, we're going to have to see what the legislative fallout of that uh, is going to be. I hope it's uh, minimal, although there are definite changes that we can make to to improve things in the future. 
we we see you know you you've been calling rates heading higher and they continue to head higher. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that, the ten year. I mean uh, again. I mean uh, and, and and even if we take a look uh, at 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 the recent data, I mean hourly wages year over year up to five point four percent. That's four tenths above before uh, the expectation, which was five point zero percent. We had prices paid on the uh, ISM report in the 80s. There's only been a few times in the past 10 years we've been that high. Um, uh, we have certain commodities in short supply um, and uh, uh, chips, for instance, in, in short supply uh, and, and, uh, and other pre- uh, rare metals um, that are going to be made for batteries and other very important uh, products. Um, but this is really, uh, it's, it's, this is really going to play itself out, uh, in the middle and the second half of this year, um, more than any time else. Let me bring in our guest. We're we'll talking with Simon Aral, who is actually from your uh, your alma mater, there, Professor. He's uh, the David Austin Professor of Management, IT Marketing, and Data Science at MIT, uh, where Professor Siegel got his PhD. But he's also the director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. He's also a, f- a founding partner at Manifest Capital, who's got a a, a new recent book, "The Hype Machine: How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, Our Health, and How We Must Adapt." Simon, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks. Honor, uh, honor to be here. Tell us a little bit about how you see social media's role in this recent market activity, and, and does it surprise you about what's going on here? Well, I mean, I think the uh, a number of different events have demonstrated the crowd's power as mobilized through social media. It doesn't surprise me. Experts that uh, study this have been warning for months, if not years, of the potential of social media, unlike any other technology that we've seen in the past, to uh, coordinate and accelerate the crowd's power uh, to scale, uh, unlike technologies that we've seen in the past, partly because they are amplified by algorithms. And so in my book, I actually describe the possibility of something like the Capitol riot happening uh, as it did on January 6th. And I also described at length the possibility of social media moving equity markets as it did with the GameStop uh, situation last week. I have to agree with Professor Siegel that, you know, short squeezes have been around for a long time. Uh, I also agree that what happened with GameStop was entirely predictable, that this was never a David and Goliath story like the narrative uh, attempted to paint it. Uh, There were hedge funds on both sides of the short squeeze, and most of the hedge funds that were being squeezed were out by Tuesday, and there were, you know, BlackRock made something like $3 billion, uh, and I think retail investors uh, were hurt in in the bloodbath afterwards. I saw a tweet that said, I'm confused. Is the hashtag hold the line or is the hashtag hold the bag? Because holders, holders can't sell simultaneously, and it was inevitable that this stock was going to come back down to earth. It's still a little bit above Earth, Sina, but at 64 right now, I think it's probably shouldn't be no more than 20 or 30. But, um, yeah, it's come down, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, 75%, 80% from – from its high, um, 
but but your your predictions and your book, I, I just did a glance on I me. Mean, it's 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 really fascinating. Uh, do you, do you think this will happen in the future? I mean, what 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 are what are some of your other feelings about the consequences of of the of social media on on on, on politics? Um, you said the, the the Capitol riot on the sixth was coordinated, perhaps that way. Do you what what other things that we are not expecting? Do you think uh, the, the social media could spark? Well, the uh, subtitle of the book is, uh, you know, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health. Uh, and so the third uh, leg of that stool is our public health. And in fact, um, uh, what I describe in the book uh, as the third major prediction is the disruption uh, in our public health uh, as it relates to the coronavirus. And on Saturday, we saw that social media uh, fueled anti-vax sentiment shut down Dodger Stadium, which was uh, one of the largest vaccination sites in uh, Los Angeles. And this is just a rerun of what happened with measles is in 2018 and 2019, uh, where you know we eradicated measles in the United States in the year 2000. In 2010, there were 63 cases of measles. In 2019, there were 1,250 cases in just the first six months, and that year there was an 1,800% increase in measles. And if you look at the data, the outbreaks were in places like Rockland County, New York, and Clark County, Washington. And if you look at the Facebook ad buys for anti-vaccine content, what you'll notice is that it, those ads are targeted exactly at these tight-knit communities and where you see vaccine hesitancy increase, where you see vaccination drop below herd immunity, and then where you see resurgence of, you know, measles is more contagious and more deadly than the coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus is obviously a worldwide uh, critical pandemic, and, and obviously, that, as Austin Goolsby has said multiple times, the only path to actually economic recovery is to controlling the coronavirus pandemic itself, which I agree with. Uh, so I think that the third leg of that stool that I'm worried about is the role of misinformation and social media in uh, in the trajectory of the pandemic. Now that's interesting. Misinformation is why does social media amplify misinformation? Why why are people more you know gullible? Uh, to that than they would be. I mean, there's always been radical newspapers, extreme newspapers, uh, you know, through history then, and radio shows and others. So the, can, can you explain a little to us what, what makes the people yep. fall for that rather than uh, other forms of communication? Well, I think it's a combination of algorithmic amplification and human psychology. And I'll tell you what I mean. So, we did a 10-year study of all of the true and false verified news stories that ever spread on Twitter from its inception in 2006 until 2017, which we published on the cover of Science in 2018. And what that study showed was that false news traveled farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information, sometimes by an order of magnitude. And when we looked into why that was the case, 
we first thought, well, maybe false news spreaders uh, had more followers or followed more people or were more often verified users or had been on Twitter longer or tweeted more often. And we looked at all of these in turn, and what we found was in every case, the opposite was true. So false news spreaders had fewer followers, followed fewer people, were less often verified and so on. And then what we looked at is, you know, well, then if that's not the explanation, why is it traveling so much faster? And we looked into two things. We looked at the novelty of the information, and we looked at the replies to true and false tweets in, uh, in the way that people replied to the news. And what we found was that false news was shocking, yeah. salacious, anger-inducing, blood-boiling, and human psychology combined with uh, a desire to be the one seen to be spreading insider information, p- people who seem like they're in the know, raises our status. And so uh, the human psychology combined with the fact that the algorithms are going to amplify things that are getting a lot of engagement, those two things in combination uh, make social media particularly vulnerable to misinformation. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I was thinking about it, that false news is generally more shocking than uh, true news. In, in finance uh, that, Twitter, it's like the... Any degree of uh, extremity. Um, uh, That's right. Uh, now, tell me your... Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, I interrupted. I didn't want to, so you're going to follow up on that. False news is unconstrained by reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, is, so do you think that the anti, the, when you say public health, um, you, are you specifically talking about the anti-vaxxer movement? Are you, are you, uh, actual, are you also talking about other, other factors? Well, I mean, I think that the anti-vaccination movement is important specifically to our public health. Obviously, we're having a very public conversation about the role of this QAnon theory in our Congress uh, over the last couple of days with Representative Green and uh, whether she should be stripped of her committee appointments and so on. Um, And I think that just this notion of conspiracy going mainstream uh, is 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 a story that could be embodied in a number of different instantiations, whether it's public health or stock markets or you know uh, uh, debate about you know what happened during the election, whether there was fraud or not. Which, by the way, let me just state that there have been over 60 court cases that have uh, t- turned up no evidence of voter fraud in uh, in the election. So, or at least nothing beyond anecdote. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that it could be become embodied in a number of things. And it's hard to predict uh, where the next conspiracy is going to come from. But I think this is actually a foundational problem because this communication technology is so front and center of our communications ecosystem today worldwide. And it has this clear set of vulnerabilities that we need to think about. What a well, two things. Do you think that it is n- net good or net bad? You, we, we, uh, and do you think that there should be some regulation put on it? And, and if so, what? Great questions. Uh, so 
I'm a big fan of books like Surveillance Capitalism and Zucked and the movie uh, Social Dilemma, but my book is designed to take off where this, these books and movies leave off, which is to ask, what can we do? What can we concretely do to fix the social media crisis that we find ourselves in? And uh, the book, uh, the thesis of the book is that this technology, like many others before it, has the potential for tremendous promise as well as the potential for tremendous peril. And in the book, I describe a lot of positive things that come uh, from, from this type of technology. Uh, and for the interest of time, I won't go into it, but I encourage people uh, to look into the book for those examples. In terms of what do we do, I think the entry ticket is that we have to create competition in the social media economy and the reason for that is because if the platforms don't face competition, they don't have any incentive to change. They can continue to make record-breaking profits without really addressing a lot of the issues that exist because consumers are sort of, if they want to speak to their friends and family, they have to stick with the platforms that they're on. When I say competition, people always assume I mean break up Facebook, but, um, you know, this economy runs on network effects, and economies that run on network effects tend towards market concentration. Mm -hmm. If your only solution is to break up the market leader, it's just going to tip the next Facebook-like company into market dominance. What we really need is structural reforms of the social media economy itself, and what I mean by that is interoperability legislation and social network and data portability legislation so that it structurally creates the underlying uh, uh, you know, ecosystem of competition in the economy. After we do that, we need to address each of the market failures in turn, including privacy, uh, uh, election integrity, and how do we free speech and harm, which is about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, as well as other things. And so in the book, I talk about competition, then I go into detail about each of these market failures and how we deal with them from a regu regulatory perspective. Let me just quickly reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Professor Sinan Aral, who is a professor of, of data science at MIT, also the director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Uh, and one of the things, you know, we talked, there's, there's the, you just talked about the Section 230 and the platforms and the, edit, you know, some of the, the, actions things like twitter were taking it actually comes back you know, we had the elections in the u.s and now just just this uh, today there's headlines on in india there's all these protests over some new activities there india's government's taken against some of the farmers and protests and and uh and and maybe shutting off certain accounts how do you think government should deal with this and and twitter in this situation being told different things about the protests in india how do you think they're taking right actions to shutting things down how what should they be doing here well, I think you might have also seen that Facebook was shut down in Myanmar uh, because people were uh, protesting the coup uh, over Facebook and organizing against the coup. And so you can see uh, various ways in which social media can be organized to resist authoritarianism, to uh, um, uh, uh, exacerbate authoritarianism, and so on. And so it's in how we use the technology that matters. When it comes to Section 230, and where we draw the line between harmful speech and free speech, I'm a, a very strong believer in free speech. I think it's essential uh, cornerstone to democracy, to a marketplace of ideas. Um, but you can't, there are limits. In other words, you can't say, you can't 
scream fire in a crowded theater. I don't think any of us want to see live streaming of mass murders like the one in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, free, free over Facebook. Um, and so there, are, there, there is a need to draw lines between free speech and harmful speech. Um, but I think that before we ask where is that line, we have to ask who should draw it. And in my opinion, the best place to draw those lines are in representative, deliberative bodies like the legislature, the Congress in the United States, not in five-person politically appointed commissions like the FTC and the FCC. When it comes to Section 230, there's a debate between repeal or reform. I think this is a false uh, debate. I think repeal of Section 230 doesn't make any sense at all, because Section 230 was essentially designed to allow the platforms to moderate, to give them the freedom to moderate without uh, facing uh, lawsuits from potentially 3 billion people about what 3 billion other people said about them on social media. If you repeal Section 230, one of two things will happen. Either the platforms will not moderate anything and say, it's a free-for-all, we're not making any content moderation decisions, so you can't sue us over them, and social media will become more of a swamp than it already is, or uh, they will moderate everything, and you'll see tremendous censorship. They'll run everything by legal before they put it online, and we don't want that either. There is a way to uh, rationally and, and logically reform Section 230, and I think that that has to be done through the legislature. A good way, a good example of that is the Stop Sex Trafficking Act, which was passed nearly unanimously in the Congress. We can debate about whether that was good or bad for sex workers, and we have, but that's a good example of how laws can say, well, you know what, we think that advertisements for sex trafficking should be clearly uh, over the line of harmful speech, uh, and we will uh, make those decisions in a representative and deliberative way. So now let me ask you, um, do you approve or disapprove of the removal of uh, President Trump from Facebook and Twitter, and why? I think that is such a good question, such an important question. I think there are pros and cons. I think at the moment uh, there were uh, some uh, reasonable arguments to be made that there were incitements to violence. And so I think that incitements to violence, I think, uh, are uh, things that you can put into the camp of harm. Uh, and we can get into the debate about, well, what about sarcastic incitements to violence? And where do you draw the line between sarcasm and real incitements to violence and so on? And those types of things are important. Uh, but I think there's also another side to this, which is that it creates the possibility of what I've called a splinter net and what other people have called a splinter net, where uh, you get divided uh, communities on different platforms um, which who are all talking to each other, for instance, if the silos, immediately, oh, the silos, the silos, right? the silos. So people immediately, you know, uh, went to Parler and Gab and then Parler was shut down and so on. But if you imagine the outcome of this is an equilibrium where there are different silos of information, that's not going to be good for political polarization. And any student of negotiation knows that <clears throat> One of the first things you need to a successful negotiation is common ground. And we're not going to develop common ground if we split off into silos of different platforms with different viewpoints. So I think there's a danger in, um, in banning as well. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I remember one person saying, you know, 
It used to be back in the 50s when I was a teenager, there were three networks that had 15 minutes of national news, and that's all the people got the news. It was pretty homogenized, pretty straightforward facts. Um, and, of course, the, multi, you know, the ability to go all left, all right, and now join any silo you want, uh, you know, was, is, is uh, the polar opposite of what that is. Some people thought that that previous system produced more community and reasonable uh, discourse. Others said it was, uh, you know, brainwashing by the mainstream media. So you're still going to get arguments on both sides. Sir, sure, closing thoughts here, Professor Earl. We got thirty seconds. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, what we've seen in just January is unmistakable uh, in terms of the importance of social media in our society from the perspective of our democracies, uh, our economies, and our public health. And I think that uh, finally. People are starting to wake up to the immense power of this technology. Now we need to get past the armchair theorizing about whether social media is good or evil. The answer is yes. We need to get to scientific, detailed solutions to the social media crisis. Well, this was great. Great conversation. Thanks, Professor Aral, Professor Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can check us out on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 